morning, in your notes, there is a heading for part one of faith, gleanings from Hebrews. And let me, let me give you how we arrived at this point. It's an interesting thing. The timing of God is always interesting. It is, it is not ironic. It is sovereign. So it's a little different. It doesn't just like, ooh, by coincidence, all kinds of things happen. No, God is sovereign over events. But, you know, where we, where we are in terms of some preaching series, and we, we'd spent a great deal of time preaching through Romans and just enjoyed verse by verse going through that book together. Um, recently had been led to a study on the church covenant, which, uh, we, which we are in the midst of finalizing that. Took time to do that as well as the teaching on the presence of God in our midst, and we're preparing to move into a study on the Gospels, and wasn't feeling quite ready to, to pursue that, and so asking the Lord, Lord, what are you wanting us to, to do right now before we get into that long study in the Gospels that we'll be pursuing, and begin to pray about that, and, and, and pursued some thought, meditation earlier in the week, and and just really didn't feel a release to go in that direction, so I think it was probably Wednesday night, feeling like, okay, Lord, uh, Saturday and Sunday are a coming, and and I have no sense of of what we should do in the interim here before we begin a longer study. And Thursday morning, I wake up and begin to to pursue the Lord over this and pray and and just have a, a sense of stirring from God to begin to to study faith, but particularly faith in the letter to the Hebrews. And it had a specific element to it, so I, I really I sat down and read through all of Hebrews and. And begin just to listen for God as I was reading through that letter. And, and got a number of directions and began to feel a sense from the Lord, a direction for us as a church to hear some dynamics on faith and um, putting those things together Thursday morning. Thursday afternoon, I walk into a meeting uh, with Pete Shefferstein. And you know Pete, the bearer of bad tidings, Shefferstein is his new middle name. Um, Kind of, if you see me greet Pete, it's kind of at a distance. You know, I don't necessarily want to hear anything from him anymore. Um, Pete walks in or sits in my office and begins to share with me what his day has been full of so far. And he first starts off with news about the test piles. You know, we drove test piles out at the site to, to find out what kind of pilings that we're going to need to support 25 tons worth of weight of building. So these piles have been driven, and now they've been tested, and they failed at 16 tons. So we're not even close yet. Uh, we were hoping, okay, because the next step up from these piles becomes much more expensive pilings to support this building. So that's great, Pete. That's great news. Uh, thanks. Well, he's not done yet. And next, he wants to tell me that one of the contractors that are in our bid process has called and decided to opt out of the bid process. They no longer want to be considered uh, as possible general contractors and uh, are citing load of work that they're getting, which many of them are, are citing that when they talk to us about the job. They've got a lot of work going on, so they're busy giving their attention to other jobs and taking other jobs that, that they are um, engaging right now at this point. Well, Pete presses them a little bit further to try to get a feel for them. You know, well, well how was this looking? How were the numbers coming out as you guys were working this stuff up? And, and they gave him some numbers feedback. They're not quite done with the process yet, but just kind of about where they were. It, their numbers were going to be about 40% higher than our budgeted numbers. 40% higher than our budgeted numbers. Now, we've heard worse than that from another contractor. Um, so 
not only are we losing a contractor, we're also getting news that uh, their price was going to be pretty high. And this was a very reputable, solid contractor that we were actually very excited about having uh, on board with us. Uh, then the day is not over. Later, Mr. Good News himself walks in to say he got a call from another contractor who has also decided that they would no longer be a part of the bid process, which brings us down to two contractors. So this is, this is all Thursday, uh, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon. So interesting that Thursday morning is a great study on faith in the book of Hebrews. Thursday afternoon is hanging out with Pete Shefferstein. <laughs> Thursday evening, I uh, took all these issues before the Lord and sought the Lord and prayed. And, you know, my, my beginning point which, which I think could be problematic, not always, but sometimes. My beginning point is, okay, Lord, uh, where, where have we missed something here? You know, I, I began to review, walk back through the process of decision-making, how we walk this out, how we've arrived at this point in building and what we're building and uh, going about the building process. And I'm remembering back how you know, the Lord has brought people to us. I mean, just... He brought Jim Wilson out of nowhere into our lives. He brings Michael Brady out of nowhere into our lives. These men are godly men. Uh, Jim in particular would be in a Sovereign Grace Church, would be uh, an advisor to the folks in Covenant Life in terms of their own building issues, been walking with the Lord for a long time. Uh, these, are, these are men who are pursuing God in their own lives, and they are experts in their field, and they bring their insights by God's grace into our life and, and uh, we listen, we get counsel, we pray, we pursue God, we, we take direction, we take action based on what we're sensing from God and what we're hearing from counsel. We hire an architect who uh, we very much like, who just a year earlier had finished a building that we absolutely love. The Sovereign Grace Church was built by this architect in Knoxville, Tennessee. I believe the price was about $112 a square foot that he built the building at compared to the numbers of over $220 a square foot that we're hearing coming back towards us right now. This is only just two years later since this guy finished the building in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, factoring all these little elements in, we, we've interviewed contractors, we've set up cost elements going into this process to get an idea about what it's costing here in New Orleans. We've prayed, we've fasted, we've gone away, we've asked you to do the same. And so I'm spending time with the Lord saying, okay, Lord, I'm reviewing this thing. Uh, God, what is, what is up? Did we missed something here. We missed you. And it's, it's very easy for me to hear. I don't know how you are. It's very easy for me to hear the Lord say, uh, well, would you like to discuss your deficiencies? Well, sure. Let's talk about that, Keith, because there is a long list here. And I know, I know you're bringing up these three or four, but, you know, I'm God and I'm noticing a lot more than those three or four. Can I fill you in on a few more? And so I'm kind of prepared. I'm braced for that. I'm ready for the Lord to say, you know, well, here's, here's all the weakness you guys are bringing to this thing. And instead, I get this kind of out of left field impression from God. Uh, kind of sounds like this. Why are you, why are you assuming I'm not in what you are hearing? Why are you assuming there's a problem? Uh, when you ask me to lead you and guide and protect the church, did you not think I would do that? 
Are you assuming right now that I'm not? Well, that was a little bit of a different thought. That what we're hearing and experiencing and walking in is God answering prayer. Is God being faithful? Is God doing exactly what we've been asking him to do? That doesn't look like what I thought it would look like, mind you. But you know, in studying this whole realm of faith and, and looking at how we operate in faith, my, my tendency, maybe yours, my tendency is to place more emphasis on man's contribution and failings than on God's faithfulness. I'm much more aware that of our ability to screw up the kingdom of God than I am aware of God's ability to maintain and bring the kingdom into our midst and into our lives. And I don't know how you track as you walk through life and news filters into your life and you engage certain things. But are you, are you apt to more believe in <clears throat> death than you are in resurrection? We're convinced death is coming for all of us. When the doctor diagnoses a situation, we face illness in our life. We face the reality that this is a temporary situation. Death looms over that. We feel the weight of death. Do we feel the anticipation of resurrection or do we just feel the weight of death? You know, we're, we're well informed and well aware of the doctrine of depravity, of how sin has soaked itself into the fibers of every dynamic of human existence. But are we more aware and more believing in the effectiveness of depravity than we are in the effectiveness of regeneration? That into these fallen bodies, God comes with interrupting power and regenerates our lives and does something in our midst that actually alters the course of depravity. Or do we just have such a strong belief in depravity and the course of sin that we just know, oh, once we start down this road, you know, it's like trying to put brakes on ice. You know, ultimately, we end up at the bottom. Or do we have a sense that no regeneration has come into our lives? The Spirit of God has come. He's interrupted that. We are not like the rest of humanity. We don't anticipate God. And at least I, I find myself not anticipating God that way. We can become much more aware of and much more in faith for the judgment of God because we miserably fall short so much. And we do. The people of God, I'm not talking about the people in this city who deserve judgment because of wayward lives, but the people of God with the little places of idolatry that are in each of our lives that we're managing and trying to flee from and sometimes trying to run to them. We're much more aware of and have faith for the fact that God would oppose us than that he would be for us. That God would bring judgment rather than that God would bring undeserved favor in our lives. We believe more in the dynamic of God that brings punishment than we do in the dynamic of God that brings undeserved grace and blessing on our lives. So therefore, faith begins to anticipate things a certain way. And this can, this can boil into the realities of our lives. If you're a, a person in a marriage that's in trouble, been that way for years, you're praying about that. You can begin to believe more in the weakness and sin of that other person than you do in the power of God to touch their life. 
mean, after all, you got 20 years of track record. Of that. It's, that's just the way he's always been. He's, he's always been that way. And you, you almost give away the fact that you believe more in the momentum of the sin in that person's life than you do in God coming in and stopping it. You can, you can believe that way about your children. Begin just believe that they, you know, they're not going to change. They're, they're not going to have a heart after God. You know, they're just, there's apathy going on in their life. There's sloppiness going on in their life. They don't take the right thing serious. And that's kind of, that's just been the way they've been throughout their life. And you can begin just to default to believing in that. You, you can be a teenager walking through life, believing more in the, in the ideas that you're not going to be accepted People aren't going to care for you. You're going to be ostracized. You won't have friends. Your ears are going to be too big. Your nose too long. Whatever. You're much more prone to believe that than to believe that God will be sufficient for me. God will be my friend. God will bring to me friends that are needed in my life. You can be single and, and begin to put faith in and have trust in perpetual singleness. Well, I've been single for this long. You know, the momentum's moving me toward more singleness. I want to be married, but it ain't never going to happen. It ain't never going to happen. You begin to think in your, in your heart that there's not going to be a person that can come into your life that you're going to be able to marry. They're not going to be interested. You're not going to be interested in them. You just begin to believe these things. But where, where is faith in the midst of that? Where's the place for faith? How should faith be operating in those real settings of our lives? Now, when we study faith here in Hebrews, um, let me make a distinction here. I'm not, I'm not talking about personality optimism. You know, just you know, that personality that's, you know, you got the, the people who when they look at a glass, they, some people see it half empty, some people see it half full. You know, which one are you? Well, I'm really not talking about that. Because some of that doesn't have anything to do with faith in a biblical sense. It has more to do with just the way you're wired. You're just your temperament is that way. You're one of those kids when they took pictures of, a, of, of children growing up. Every picture when you were a kid, you look like this. You know, they changed your name, called you Smiley. Just Life comes and people tell you all kinds of things. And, and all the weight and difficulty just kind of goes right over your head. You don't even hear it. You know, you're just kind of, the sun will come out tomorrow. What'd you say? You know, and then there's other people who, like, take notes. Oh. Oh, no, it'll be worse than that. What else you got? Oh, no. On a good day. You know, and it's just kind of, that's just the way you greet life. So, you know, before you start thinking, oh, the, the person who's got the glass half full, oh, they're just so full of faith. Not necessarily. They could just be wired to be that way. It may not be some great work of God in their life. Ken Hughes says, Faith is it's not a feeling like the line from Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. It's not that. It's not optimism or bootstrap positive thinking either. It's not a hunch. It's not sentimentality. See, faith is able to look at the realities of what is there and see something else along with it it doesn't just say well i don't hear what's going on i don't want to i know i don't see i just i just believe positive. you just gotta you just gotta believe you just gotta be positive that's what you gotta be you gotta be positive that's not necessarily faith 
When you see faith in the Bible, it is it is often against the backdrop of severe difficulty, realistic problems that we don't have to bury our head in the sand and say, I don't want to see that. I want to hear. Don't confess that. Don't say that. No. Lazarus is dead. No, 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 no. He's just real tired. Really, really tired. No, no. He's dead and he stinks. He's so dead. Wow. No, don't say that. Come on, you got to look on the bright side. Bright side, he's dead. The dude is dead. What, see, faith doesn't deny what's going on in that situation. Faith sees something in addition to that situation. And that's kind of what we need to, to learn about seeing. So open up with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll put our foot down in the middle of this book, this letter. And we're going to eventually splash out from this setting into other places in the letter. Because really, I think the entire letter is relevant to this subject in a unique way. These would be familiar verses. Let me just get them in front of us and we'll kind of introduce the subject this morning. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Then skip down to verse 6. We'll touch base on the rest of this another time. Look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now we're going we're gonna to look at several different dimensions here in this particular passage. If you, if you know anything about Hebrews, which, which some folks don't know much about it, you'd probably know something about this chapter. It's the hall of faith. It is the people who had a great resume about faith and we are often introduced to them and uh, we learn from their lives, and we're going to learn as we study through here as well. But what I want to draw our attention to is not just the study of faith, but the study of faith in the letter of Hebrews. So why, why faith in Hebrews? I'm going to give you two quick reasons. One, to receive the benefits of the boundaries and the content of the letter. Sometimes, and I don't fault us for doing this, we do this quite a bit, uh, there are different ways of presenting biblical truth. We can, we can go verse by verse, we can look at a verse, teach from that verse, or you can, you can teach topically from the Bible and draw from many reference points throughout Scripture, more of a systematic approach to a topic where you would take faith and you look at it from Genesis to Revelation, you draw all kinds of examples, etc., uh, both of those are viable ways to teach the Bible. Both of them present different strengths and present different weaknesses. Uh, what I would like for us to do, because we've spent a great deal of time teaching topically lately, I'd like for us to, to try and spend some time just looking at a letter where the content and the letter itself is inspired by God. Now, God has inspired, and what's interesting about this letter, and I'll just read you a little bit of background on it in just a second. What's interesting is, not only is the content that we are reading inspired by God, but the timing of it being written and the audience to the original letter is also part of God's inspiration. Part of what God used to communicate particular things had to do with a particular people who needed to hear a particular emphasis in their lives. 
This is what we would call, if you'd study the Bible, it's called an occasional letter. Occasional letters don't mean that they're written every once in a while. It means that there was an occasion into which the letter is trying to make its address. So the people in Hebrews, they're experiencing something. In their lives, there is an occasion of a particular need that's in their life. And, and God inspires the word to come to them and to address that. Which means for us to fully benefit from it, we don't just want to reach in and grab a verse out of it. We want to actually understand something about the letter, something about why it was written, who it was written to. Now, for instance, William Lane, in your outline there, in his commentary on Hebrews, comments about the people that this is being written to. He says, the targeted audience was an assembly in crisis. There had been defections from their number. Among those who remained, there was a loss of confidence in the viability of their convictions. They displayed a lack of interest in the message of salvation they had embraced, which formerly had given them a sense of identity as the new covenant people of God. The writer implies that they were no longer listening to the voice of God in Scripture and preaching. They clearly had regressed from the stance of bold commitment they had exhibited shortly after identifying themselves with, with the Jesus movement, when they had endured public abuse and imprisonment and loss of property. They are described as lethargic and disheartened. They had become weary with the necessity of sustaining their confession in a social climate, hostile to their presence. Now, what's interesting about understanding the, the occasion of a letter or the people to whom it's written is often what helps us even more embrace the Scriptures is identifying with them and finding ourselves. This, this could have been us. We could find ourselves amongst the Hebrews to whom this letter is addressed. I mean, if you just walk through what William Lane describes right there, in the midst of them, there had been defections. Have you, have you ever felt that way? Defections. These were people who were at one point part of the body walking together, but they had defected. They had stopped coming. For whatever reason, things had gone on in their lives that they had pulled back from the people of God. They had pulled back from pursuing the kingdom of God. Its importance wasn't at the same level for them. And they were no longer to be seen. And maybe you can think for a moment, you've been walking with the Lord for any time. Have you had a season like that in your own life? Where you just, if you didn't actually just stop attending and stop coming, stop being a part of gatherings like these, your heart just kind of wasn't there at least. You know, in the sense of your passion, you may have discontinued to go out of obligation, but by, by a sense of connection and vibrancy, it just wasn't there. There was a sense of defection. In your own life. Or he says there was a, a loss of confidence in the viability of their convictions. You, know, you ever get to a place where you just wonder what you believe in a particular area of your walk? You face life over and over and over again in a certain category. And it seems to be that life is going this way. But you believe the scriptures to be teaching this way. And you get this divergence that occurs. And if you walk in that long enough, what do you do when you get to the place where you just wonder... I don't even know what I believe anymore in this area. Now, if you walk with Christ very long, I bet you felt that way. Ever believe in healing? And pray for somebody dear to you? Not casually. Pray fast. Cling to God. Grab every promise you can figure out how to grab. And the illness gets worse and the person dies. 
And then it happens again. And you get to a point where you ask the question, I don't, I don't even know what I believe in that category. Or you're praying about some situation or some person who's wayward. You're praying for them. You're grabbing the Scriptures as best you know how. You're praying for them to be restored. You're praying for them to come back. You're praying for their situation to change. And it gets worse and it stays prolonged and it's years later. And you, and you think the Word says to believe and to have faith and the power of God to do this or do that. And you grab that and you make use of it and it doesn't happen. And you get to a point where you kind of sound like this too. I don't even know what I believe anymore. And the viability of convictions that you held, that you jumped up in somebody else's life and said, no, 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 listen, pray this, do that. And you, you cheered them on as they walked through that process. And yet you find yourself in a place of going, I don't, I don't know what I believe at this point. This was who these guys are. He highlights that there was a lack of interest in salvation. The lack of interest in the message of the salvation they had embraced, which formerly had given them a sense of identity. Do you remember when you got saved? Remember when you first got saved? And your life, like this desert, drank in the gospel. And everything about God was new and it was delightful and you couldn't read enough. And somebody gave you a book and it was great, even though it wasn't great. But it was great. You listened to a tape and you went to this meeting and you hung around people and you prayed and everything was incredible. And you had this sense, I mean, your whole life got turned upside down. You had a pre-existing set of routines that all of a sudden were no longer in your life. You had a pre-existing set of friends that all of a sudden there was a new group of people in your life. And you ran hard after these things. And these guys had come to a point where all of a sudden that just didn't affect them the same way anymore. There was sameness now. And it, it wasn't the most important thing. And yeah, I know. Well, the gospel, yeah, of course the gospel is the most important thing. And we say that with our mouths, but sometimes we, we kind of don't really feel the fire of that anymore. Like, can you relate to these guys? Am I just reading our mail? This is us. This is where we live. Stopped embracing teaching. Stopped having a passion. Stopped taking notes. Went to meetings, but couldn't remember a thing said. They were there, but... There was nothing in them that, that kick-started constantly this. What am I listening for today? What is God going to say to me now? Oh, I want to study that out further. That was gone in their life. See, this, this is the condition. This is the occasion into which Hebrews is written. Now, what's interesting before we would look at these guys and say, hey, what's up with these guys? These guys were not slackers. When you read a little bit of their resume, look, just back up a little bit into chapter 10. Verse 32, says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And this, this, these guys have a resume. They came into the kingdom of God with great zeal and delight in a setting. It wasn't like for us, you know, we get saved and maybe there's no ramifications. Maybe our, maybe our friends or family members raise an eyebrow to us or wonder, what's up with you? But these people publicly had to face issues, loss of job, being ostracized, being put in prison. 
Because they come to faith. Having, having the abusive government and officials come in and actually steal their property, just take it from them because of their confession of what they believed. And it says, you joyfully endured this. You went and you spent yourself on others who were walking through this. Do you remember those days that are no longer in your midst? This is what this letter is intending to remedy. You once walked with such great zeal. Something's happened. And your faith, where is your faith gone? And I believe this letter very much, it is a letter about faith. It is a letter written with the, with the intent of building up faith back into a believer's life. And if that's where we find ourselves, if it's not now, we will find ourselves in that place at some point. Well, that would be one reason to study faith in Hebrews. The second would be to see faith as foundational to our lives and not just a topical cream applied to momentary bobos. It's probably not... Hebrews chapter 11 is probably not unfamiliar verses to us. But sometimes this, this subject of faith, which is so grand, which quite honestly I think the entire book of Hebrews is strategically trying to teach us how faith gains its strength, how faith finds its support base. And what I love about looking through this book is I think you're going to see how, how does the Bible rush in to a moment when faith has become diminished in our lives. What does the Bible sound like? How does the inspiration of God go there with us? Now, where we sometimes go, I think we go into the topical cream thing. Somebody's having a hard time in life, and we just kind of pull out a verse on faith and say, well, you just got to trust God. You just, you, you know, are you trusting God? You know? Are you having a problem here? Can I rub this on you real quick? Okay, there you go. Come on, go trust God. You got to trust God. Come on. And that's about all we know to say. Come on, you just got to trust God. You just got to trust God. Come on, you just got to believe. Are you believing? Sounds like unbelief to me. I trust God. And if the person has eyeballs after that exchange, if you haven't gouged them out or poked them out, is there something deeper here that actually touches the issue of faith? I think there is. I think this book is a strategic argument to place us in a position to be overwhelmed by faith in our lives. And it is what the writer is trying to help with. All these things that William Lane has described all throughout script, all throughout this letter describe a people who are having a difficulty enduring, who are fighting with falling away, who are not maintaining hope. They once were in a place that they're not any longer. And here's how the Bible comes and, and props us up and strengthens our faith. But today I just want to hit two issues as we open up some thought here, what is faith and how's your faith doing? What is faith? Sinclair Ferguson says, faith is a great biblical word, but its currency has been taken over, unfortunately, by religious language in general. It is common to hear other religions today described as other faiths, even, all, even though faith in the biblical sense is given no part to play in them. So we're kind of in a deficit here. When you come to the Bible, always remember, we, we already have definitions for words and concepts, and we come to the Bible and we assume the Bible means what we think. Rather than having our ideas adjusted to see what does the Bible mean when it says it, and maybe my ideas need to be adjusted a little bit. You know, this, this word faith, it's all over the religious pages of our lives, from wherever we come from. Now, there's a funeral home in New Orleans called All Faiths Funeral Home. What on earth does that mean? 
Well, I guess it's good for, you know, people who are of the Muslim faith and people who are of the Jewish faith. And that's an interesting combination. People who are of the Christian faith. Now, if that word means the same thing in all those settings, then basically it's a word that doesn't mean anything. Because all those beliefs are at odds with each other. They, they can't quite get along. They don't function the same way. They don't look to God. They don't even look to the same God. So we have to be careful that we haven't just got some bad ideas about what faith is. But let me get personal with you for a moment about your faith, my own faith that's in me. Is your faith real in your life? Is it, is it vibrant? Do you notice it? Does it make noise in your life? Does it stick out? Does it adjust things? Does it motivate you, move you along? Does it cause you to say yes to some things and no to others? Is it healthy in your life? Listen to this thought from J.C. Ryle, who I appreciate his views on so many subjects. He is a pastor and theologian from the 1800s in England. He says, questions about religion are seldom popular. They frighten people. They oblige them to look within and to think. I hope that is what happens every time we're together. I hope as we handle the Word of God, it obliges us to look within and think. The insolvent tradesman does not like his books to be searched. The faithless steward does not like his accounts to be examined. And the unconverted Christian does not like to be asked home questions about his soul. I know of few questions more important than the one, do we believe? The question before us is no, is, is no easy one to answer. It will not do to thrust it aside by the offhand answer, of course I believe. True belief is no such matter of course as many supposed. Myriads of Protestants and Roman Catholics are constantly saying on Sundays, I believe who know nothing whatever of believing. They cannot explain what they mean. They neither know what nor in whom they believe. They can give no account of their faith. A belief of this kind is utterly useless. It can neither satisfy nor sanctify nor save. Now listen, I can so relate to what he just described. I remember growing up, and if you'd ask me, Keith, Keith, do you believe? Do you, have, do you have faith? I'd have said yes, absolutely. I wouldn't even pause. There would be no hesitation in me to say yes. So, you know, of course I believe. You know, I'm not, uh, not some backwoods heathen. Do you believe? Yeah, yeah, I believe. But just don't ask me what I believe and certainly don't ask me why I believe it. I, had, I really didn't know. I knew something about what I believed. I was raised going to church with my family. I had heard things said over and over and over again. And the, the huge difference between where I was then and where I became as a, as a Christian was the fact that previously I had never examined what I believed and I had not owned it for myself. It just was simply what my family had always done. You know, we grew up here in New Orleans, family traditions. We went to church regularly. If you grew up in New Orleans, you probably grew up Catholic. That had been true for me. If I, perhaps if I had grown up in Utah, I'd have been Mormon. If I had grown up in New York City, perhaps I'd have been Jewish. If I'd have grown up in northern Alabama, perhaps I'd have been Baptist. But I just was what, what was going on around me. But I didn't own this faith. And in reality, this faith was having very little significance in my life, very little shaping influence. It was part of the scenery of my life. 
but by way of a passion? Did I wake up in the morning with God on my mind? Did I wake up with a faith that extended itself on a regular basis into saying, God, you are my delight in all that I have, God. Nothing compares to you. I give it all up for you. Was that the kind of passion I had toward God? But yet I'd have told you I believed. I'd have told you to your face I believed while at the very same time I was a liar. I was a deceiver. I would, I would steal from you and then lie to you and convince you I didn't. That's who I was. I was, I was uh, a partying 12, 13, 14-year-old doing drugs and drinking on a regular basis. But yet, if you asked me if I believed, I'd have said, yeah, sure, I believe. You have faith? Yeah, yeah, I have faith. What on earth does that mean? What do you believe? Well, I'd, have had, I'd, have, I'd have begin to have a hard time if you'd have asked me what I believed. And then if you'd asked me why I believed it, you'd have sunk me. So that's not, a, that's not a worthy faith. Did you hear this morning? And those questions begin to make you uncomfortable. As J.C. Ryle said, these are uncomfortable questions. They are uncomfortable questions when we reach down into our soul and we don't find reason for what we're doing. Can I tell you this? You're in a great place. If you're uncomfortable, that could be the best place for you to be. Because you'll actually begin to ask yourself questions. That's what ended up happening in my life. I began to ask questions. I, I heard a presentation that challenged my view on everybody's okay with God. And challenged me to think more biblically because I'd never seen the Bible. Or actually, I'd never really studied the Bible. I'd seen it in Catholic Church, but I never really studied it. And when I began to see how God relates to man, it, it began to upset my apple cart a little bit. It made me start asking questions. And I did. I asked questions for about five or six months. And the Lord used that period of time to bring me to himself and open my heart for conversion. Charles Spurgeon says, the first thing in faith is knowledge. A man cannot believe what he does not know. That is clear, self-evident axiom. If I have never heard of a thing in all my life and do not know it, I cannot believe it. Right? This makes sense. And yet there are some persons who have a faith like that of the fuller, who when he was asked what he believed, said, well, I believe what the church believes. Well, what does the church believe? Well, the church believes what I believe. And pray, what do you and the church believe? Why, we both believe the same thing. <laughs> now, this man believed nothing except that the church was right. But in what? He could not tell. It is idle for a man to say, I am a believer, and yet not to know what he believes. But yet I have seen some persons in this position. Listen, uh, this can be true if you're a young person growing up in this church. This can be true for you. You could be inheriting the faith of your fathers. Unexamined, unapplied to you personally. You don't know that you need it. It's just the way it is. Just what you grew up around. It's just what you've always heard. Listen, if you've never examined it and owned it for yourself, you are in a dangerous place to only be familiar with it from a distance. Anybody in that situation is in a bad situation. But what I love about Hebrews is this knowledgeless faith is not the approach of Hebrews. Hebrews is going to draw us into thinking. It's going to draw us into being in contact with truth. It's going to... It's going to feed faith and fuel faith so that faith becomes large for a reason. 
Not just because it's a mysterious topical cream that got applied to us that we just need to believe, we just need to believe, whatever that means. Hebrews is going to actually corner us into reasons for believing, into why our belief has substance to it. And that's why I think it's more, most important. As a matter of fact, I think one of the challenges that these guys were facing, if you back up in Hebrews 5, get a quick glimpse here of the people, I think you find one of the reasons why they were struggling in faith was because of inadequate knowledge for the basis of their faith. Hebrews 5, verse 11. The writer says about this, uh, about this is the subject of Melchizedek. Right? This is a comp- this complicated stuff in this book. He brings this subject of Melchizedek, and then he finds fault with them for not being able to, be t- to talk about it with him. He knows about this. He knows what it means. But then he says this to them. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here are a group of individuals who are on the verge of having their faith to fail. And when the writer cites reason for that and the way in which he constructs his argument, it is your faith is failing because it doesn't know what it believes. And it doesn't know why it believes it. That's why your faith is a mess. Listen, in the, in the world that you and I live in, listen, we live in a Christianity that is devotional style. It's not study style. It's devotional style. We want to read a book that takes a passage, gives us two paragraphs. We can take five to ten minutes with it, and we can get our day started, and we can say a quick prayer and move on. And we can do that on a regular basis over and over and over and over again. And I'm not even sure that qualifies for milk, much less meat and growing to maturity. And what could be happening that we're not aware of in the age in which we live is the way in which we have learned to to take in such little bit of thought. People who don't think deeply about subjects about God. People who are run off by books like Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews will run you off. It's one of those books, like it's like opening up Leviticus. And you start reading it and immediately you're lost. Immediately you're wondering, what is the significance of this? Again, this is going to say this? Another list of people? I mean, you jump into this and all of a sudden the writer is off and running and talking about Christ and comparing him to angels. And he's pulling the angels into this thing. And next thing he's going to talk about Moses. And, and then all of a sudden he runs off at one moment and brings up the priesthood. And starts teaching all these ideas about the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, and this weird guy named Melchizedek that nobody can understand anyway where he came from. And he's in here, and he's a significant person. And then there's a huge section about blood sacrifices and offerings and the blood of bulls and goats and what all that means. So you can pick up Hebrews and kind of go, ah, I think I'll just stick with James. You know, James got a lot of do this and don't do that. Why are you doing that? Stop doing it. Start doing this. I don't know if I want to go here. Hebrews is a book intended to build faith. It is intended to rescue the people of God from nominal failing faith. Its strategy is breathtaking. The way it accomplishes building faith in our lives. We need to take notes on the notes that we take. 
It doesn't just turn to you and say, oh, you're having a hard time? Well, you just need to trust God. You just need to believe. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that that's wrong to say to somebody, but that's the only thing we have to say. And if the person who's receiving it doesn't have any knowledge beyond that, it is just topical cream. It doesn't go down deep enough into them. This book goes down deep in order to draw us into the subject of faith and how it gets built and maintained and strengthened in our lives. Now, let me see if I can just spend a few minutes here hitting the issue of, of what faith really is. We'll, we'll, we'll develop this much further. Let me just whet your appetite for a moment. Hebrews 11.1 1 would give us the most succinct statement about faith. I don't think it's all-inclusive, but I do think it, it is very succinct and, and informing. Verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, that, that is, those words in the original language are very challenging to translate. What we have there, I think, is a very good attempt at putting them to meaningful access to our lives. But they are difficult words to get from that language into our language, and they sort of mess with our brain a little bit. But I put several quotes there in your outline. I'm only going to read the last one. I think it says something very interesting in it. The way it says it, I think, communicates what really is in the language there. It's from the Amplified Bible. It says, Now faith is the assurance... The confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Now you need to meditate on this. Stare at this verse. Look at it in different translations. Do yourself a favor before we get into this study a little bit. And get armed with what really is faith. How does the Bible describe it? I was reading an article by John Piper in this area, and, and he raised a, a very important question. You know, when you say, do you believe, do you have faith, are you even sure you're defining it biblically in your answer? Because it is critical to everything we're about. If we, if we miss the reality of what faith is, we will miss God all over the place. From the realm of salvation to the realm of sanctification, we will miss God everywhere. Faith touches everything in our lives. If it's in bad shape or we have a wrong definition or view of it, then we're in serious trouble. This can't be an issue that we take lightly. But when you study this thought, faith is the assurance. It is, it is a certainty of possessing something that you don't have. Now get your mind around that. It's an assuredness of me having something now that I don't yet have, but I'm sure that I do. It is a certainty of seeing things that you don't see. I don't see them, but I know they're real. See, in some ways... Faith probably lives next door to crazy. <laughs> I mean, you can start sounding crazy in this category, can't you? Wait, you, you tell me you're seeing things? Yeah, you don't see that right there? <laughs> well, faith sees things that your senses don't see. Faith possesses something that you don't yet have, 
you know, think with me just for this illustration. Let's suppose that you find yourself in a position. You have a, you have a great need for a car in your life. And you're trying to save towards it. You know, you're trying to scrape money together to, to get this car in your life. And there's all kinds of difficulties that are coming. It's prolonged. It's been a long time since you've been able to, to have a vehicle in your life. There's been a huge amount of inconvenience. You have been threats to your job, etc. You save up money. You just get to where you think you'll be able to, to buy one. And, and then something happens and you've got to use that money for something else. And then it happens two or three times. And you just, uh, you're just about to give up any sense of hope that you're going to have a vehicle. And you've, you know, you've been looking through the, the news and looking at ads and articles and what's available. You made phone calls and you've done all this research and you think, oh, but it never seems to happen. And one day into this room walks Phil Widener. Phil is the general manager of a car dealership. And Phil walks up to you and pulls out of his coat pocket an envelope. And in the envelope, there's a title deed for a new GMC Yukon right off of his dealership lot and he opens it up and he gives it to you and he says this is yours and you look at it and sure enough it has your name on it now tell me in that moment right then right there how would you respond I'm pretty sure I'd be jumping up and down I'd be you're kidding me right really it's really mine get out of here just just giving it to me. Yeah, it's yours. Look, your name, it, it is yours now. Oh, this is great. Honey, honey, remember all we've been trying to do? Ah, That'd be our response. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you actually have the car yet? For all you know, the, the car is being shipped from Detroit. You don't even see the car. You, you don't have the car. But in your hand, you have the assurance that the car is yours. And in the present, what do you feel like in that moment? Pretty excited, right? That's what faith does. See, faith in the title deeds, the promise of God, I get them in my hands, and I know they're mine even though I may not see them yet because there's a day on the calendar for them to actually appear by the time they get shipped from Detroit and they show up at my driveway next Tuesday. But I know it's coming. And this having to get through life without the vehicle is coming to an end because I know this is on its way. See, I have the deed right here. And things that you don't see yet. I haven't seen the car yet, but I know it's real and it's coming. See, that, that's, that's why I love the way the Amplified translates that. Now, faith is the assurance. It's the title deed of the things we hope for. See, you do possess it. Now, if I felt that way and was convinced of that truth in my life as it regarded the issues of my life and the promises of God in my life, even though I don't see them yet, I know they're real. And when you greet me and you interact with me, you interact with a person who holds the title deed. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. I'm at peace. My transportation problem is over. One more week of walking and riding a bus. Um, that's not always how we look, is it? 
We run around like a people who, well, I don't see it, and I'm not sure I ever will. Which says, you don't have the deed for it then, do you? See, faith is the deed. That's what faith is. Having faith is having the deed. It's not just faith, it's just something that we do to get the deed. Faith is the deed. Faith is that thing that is attached to the promise of God that says, I, it is mine. Those promises are mine. They will exist. I will see them. I will own them. They will become visible. And I'm convinced. See, we live very differently when that's, that's what we understand faith to be. And let me close by just asking us this question. Matt, you can go ahead and come. There's a few questions there, and I had to skip a section about faith being foundational to our lives. But you can read through that on your own and, and see why, why is this subject so important. It's so important because you'll see throughout Scripture, faith is involved in your salvation. You cannot be saved apart from faith. Faith is involved in your growing in Christ. You cannot relate to God. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. Well, if you don't believe that, then you can't relate to God. You can't please God without faith. Faith is, is, a, is a treasure to hold on to. It's, it's what must be in your life before God from the moment of conversion all the way to the end of the course. You must cross the finish line in faith. Some idea of sloppy theology that has us somewhere along the way, still in the race, crossing the finish line, but we fell out of the faith way back here, and we still cross the finish line because we have some strange doctrine of eternal security. Eternal security is a true doctrine because faith crosses the finish line. And you stand at the end of your life like the Apostle Paul. I have, I have finished the course. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Let me tell you what, if you're not interested in your faith, let me tell you who is. The devil is very interested in your faith. I can almost guarantee more so than you are. You want to know what he's after in your life? Now, he may, he may mess up a lot of stuff. He may come into your house and turn all kinds of stuff over. Like you know, a burglar has been here. Stuff is strewn everywhere. But you can tell by the way in which it was strewn, he was looking for something. You want to look around your life? Whether you find illness, tragedy, difficult circumstances, being sinned against, whatever it is that you find in your life, whatever rubbish you find kicked over all throughout the house of your life, I can tell you right now what he's looking for. He's looking for your faith. That's what he's after. Peter, Satan has demanded you to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. What was Satan after? Just a little sifted wheat? He was after his faith. He's after yours. He's after mine. And it is vitally important to all that I'm about. How is your faith? Is your faith saving faith? Or is it cultural, religious faith? It could be true of a number of belief patterns. Is it saving, vibrant, turn your life upside down into a relationship with God faith? 
Or is it just religious words? Well, we're going to learn through the study of Hebrews here what saving faith really is all about. Is your faith sanctifying faith? Are you, are you growing in your faith? Experiencing greater victory in your life? Is there fruit being grown of the spirit of transformation of the presence of God in my life? That would be an expression of faith. Lastly, is your faith satisfying faith? You know, maybe you identify with that description of the Hebrews. You find yourself, and you're here, but your heart has defected long ago. The enthusiasm's not there. The joy in your walk, it's not there. I mean, I know this is where I belong. I know I should be in relationship with God. And I know I should relate to the people of God, but, but joy, it's missing. Satisfaction, like I've just found the cat's meow, and this is it. Uh, no, I'm thinking, boy, this is it. I don't know. I'm missing something. Vibrant, healthy faith is very satisfying, joy-producing, enthusiastic, motivating, delightful in our hearts. If, if you sit down and you ask yourself those questions and next week, and I invite you to do this. Um, really, I, I believe this, this series will be insightful. I believe it will be encouraging. That's what this entire letter is in, in, in designed to do, is to encourage faith, to examine our faith, and then to encourage our faith. If you know somebody that, that this would probably be a good uh, outreach series to invite someone to be a part of, it's not like the church covenant that calls you to some serious commitments. That person who doesn't even know if they want to be committed to God definitely don't want to be committed to some of the jerks of us that are in here. But this is a study that, that more opens the reality of what do you believe? And how does the Bible describe faith? How can you come to faith? And what are the struggles of faith? And how can we be encouraged in that? So uh, two invitations I'd, I'd suggest you make. One would be maybe friends that you've been wanting to invite to church and you're not quite sure whether the subject matter would be something that they'd connect with. I think you'd find that this would be a better connection point for them the next few weeks of this. Um, people that are missing, scattered sheep, those who have defected, those who have wandered, those who used to be in your covenant group and you haven't seen, those who you used to see on a regular basis and you just went away, wait, where are they now? Yeah. Even as you're saying that now, names are popping in my head and faces. Um, you know, there is an issue that you can be one who joyfully allowed your property to be seized. And you can be like these Hebrews and all of us will face a season like this in our life where we're just not sure what we believe anymore. And we're needing our faith to be strengthened. If you know somebody like that, bring them, drag them here so they can hear this this voice of God in the inspired text of Hebrews that was intended to reach into people's lives who wanted to give up on their faith or were weak in their faith and prop them up and strengthen them once again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I love when you glance at the wisdom that you have placed in this word. But thank you, this isn't a book of hype. This isn't some book put together by people who are trying to sell Christianity to the world. But it highlights failure too much. Whether it's the sinfulness of the Corinthians or the 
waning faith here in Hebrews. God, thank you for being real with us. Thank you for facing the realities of our lives. That walking in a fallen world and pursuing you is not a straight line. It's crooked. It's got bends in it. Sometimes it has huge detours that we wish we hadn't taken, but we find ourselves on that road. God, thank you for words like these that restore us, that replenish our faith, that bring us back to you and reestablish vibrancy and joy and satisfaction in our hearts. God, I pray that in the weeks ahead as we stare into the this book, you will take our faith to a new place for the glory of your name. Yes, God. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week this week. Thank you.